Hey y'all, on this season of Mr. Stillman's Opus, I'm spending some time interviewing my clients here at Rosewood Wealth Management. Over the years, I've had the chance to work with a lot of different people, and a lot of them have really interesting stories to tell. Maybe they have a really neat job, maybe they've accomplished something very impressive, or maybe they've just had things happen to them in life, good or bad, that make for interesting stories. Today I'm talking with Jay Campbell. Jay is currently the executive director of the North Carolina Board of Pharmacy, but a couple of decades ago, he was an attorney working in Washington, D.C. So if you're keeping score at home, yes, that means Jay went to pharmacy school and to law school. Pretty smart dude. In any event, back in 2003, he had the opportunity to argue a case before the Supreme Court, and I wanted him to share that experience with us. At the time we had this talk, Jay and I, it was about a month before the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So obviously that's not something we discussed. Uh, But the reality is I think most people really only think about the Supreme Court whenever there's an opening on the bench and we're watching members of Congress fling their feces at each other during confirmation hearings. Or, you know, every couple of years there will be a landmark case from the court that everybody's aware of. But I was interested to hear from Jay about the things that most people would never think about. Like, what's it like to prepare to argue before the court? And what's it like to actually do it? So, hope you enjoy my conversation with Jay Campbell. So, Jay, the, the case was Doe v. Chow. Um, or, more interestingly, let's call it... Uh, Anonymous coal miner versus right. wife of Mitch McConnell. That's correct. She was the Secretary that's, of that's Labor the at the time. Yeah. So uh, we won't get too far into the facts of the case because, quite frankly, I've read the uh, I've read the transcript of your your arguments and I, I, I had trouble following a lot of it. I'm more interested in the behind the scenes of right. you being in the Supreme Court. But set the stage for us. Like what what's going on in this case? Okay. So. Um, you're right. There's a bunch of uh, coal miners in southwest Virginia um, who are making black lung claims. There's a special process through the Department of Labor where there's a compensation fund for coal miners who develop black lung, and they can file to get compensation. And the for years, the Department of Labor used the miners' Social Security numbers as sort of the case caption identifier and the Department of Labor had been told time and again, you cannot use a Social Security number as a case identifier. Seems it, like something a person would want to keep private. You, you would think so, yeah. right? And, uh, and, dis- and we're told explicitly that this disclosure of a uh, Social Security number violates the Federal Privacy Act. And despite that, they kept doing it. So eventually... These coal miners uh, brought suit against the Department of Labor under the Federal Privacy Act. And so the, the only question in the case was um, how much money could they get? They, so the, the Department of Labor did not dispute that <laughs> they had screwed this up? No, not only did they not dispute they had screwed it up, they did not dispute that they had knowingly screwed it up. Um, they did not dispute that the miners had made a prima facie case for uh, damages under the um, under the Privacy Act. The, the question, though, that came up was there was a provision in the Privacy Act that said if certain things are true, you get a thousand dollars. And the question in the case was, um, did the was it enough that the miners showed there had been an intentional violation of the act, and I had some adverse effect as a consequence of that? And of course, it was easy to say you had an adverse effect. 
you had to go out and monitor your credit or yeah. whatever the case. Well, it's just be. like people now where you say you can actually take a penalty free withdrawal from your IRA <laughs> if you've been affected by the coronavirus. Well, who hasn't been affected somehow? You don't right. have to have had it. Very easy to show. And and the government in this case did not did not contest in the trial court that there had been an adverse effect. So the question was, was that enough to get you the thousand bucks yep. in the statute, or did you have to go beyond that and show there had been some further actual my social security number was used to open a credit card in my name and i can show that that i had to pay 500 bucks to fix this or whatever so that was that was the question so it was yeah if you read the argument and the opinion it was a very technical statutory interpretation question it was an interesting one to me uh, at the time but i i'll put it this way the harvard law review every september uh produces an issue that is a uh, commentary on the previous Supreme Court term, and this case did not make the Harvard <laughs> Law Review's right. summary of the term. So you find yourself in the middle of this house. So wh- when do you find out that you're going to be arguing this case before the Supreme Court? I envision it like in Bull Durham and Nuclelouche is being told, hey, kid, we're sending you to the show. It's, right? It really is almost like it's that. It's like senior partner in your law firm comes down like, kid, you're going, you're going to the SCOTUS. It's, it's even a little bit better than that. Uh, you file the petition, but the clerk of the Supreme Court calls you directly. And so I knew uh, the day that, that the case had been conferenced was on a Tuesday, and so I was expecting on that Friday that I was going to know either the case had been granted or it had not been granted. Interesting side story, there was a, a guy who was clerking on the court at the time who's from Fuquay, Verena, and uh, he and I had gotten to be sort of friends up there, and um, he had not divulged anything, but it was kind of neat that after the case got granted, he called me to say, hey, congratulations. But I'm sitting in my office on that Friday morning, and I get a call from the Supreme Court clerk that says your case had been granted. Of course, I jumped up and went running down the hall yelling yeah. in excitement that it had been granted. And it, looking back, I'm not sure that was necessarily a great way to do it, though, because there were some partners in my practice group. I was in an appellate practice group. There were some partners there that had never argued a case in the Supreme Court, and I came to find out sometime later that not some of them did the not appreciate <laughs> my enthusiasm yeah. uh, about that. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> so what does the prep look like you know I, i've heard lawyers uh like if you maybe have a personal injury attorney he'll when he meets with the new client for the first time he's gonna wear the nicest suit he can wear right <laughs> to show success and i, sure. I win these cases uh but in front of the jury well you want to be more like a regular guy you're gonna wear a cheap suit actually in court right so I'm curious, is there any sort of trial science like that? Are you trying to pick out a tie that you think Sandra Day O'Connor is going to find <laughs> fetching on you, or how does that work? No. Um, your, your goal, of course, you're not arguing to a jury, and you're not yeah. trying to argue facts. It's just purely arguing what the law is. So just a completely different dynamic from, from anything at a trial level. Now, you're going for very conservatively dressed, dark suit, some sort of maybe moderately colored tie, but you know you're not going with some paisley design or some other um, you know, conservative. In fact, the uh, solicitor general of the United States, or the the United States attorney in the before the Supreme Court, and the assistant solicitors general, they still wear morning coats 
when they argue uh, before the Supreme Court. So these guys look like they walked in out of, you know, 1790. Do they have the wig? They do not have the <laughs> wig. I don't know when the wig no. uh, went away, but otherwise. Yeah. So are you are you nervous going to this? Like, do you have butterflies as you're walking up the steps of the Supreme Court building? Honestly, what? no. Um, but I think the reason is that was not my first time being in the Supreme Court. Um, by the time I got this case, I had written the merits briefs in seven Supreme Court cases, and I had been second chair twice. And what I mean by that is uh, the attorney who argued the case, I sat with that attorney at the table right in front of the bench and, you know, passed notes or if there was something that, you know, a look of panic that something I needed to find in the briefs or whatever. So I'd had the experience of being there, which is good because I'm telling John, if you've ever visited the Supreme Court, and you should, it's it's worth touring if you're in D.C. When you're at the, the dais, they are right on top of you. It's a high bench, and you're probably not more than about six or seven feet away from it. And so you've got these nine justices. So your all, neck is crane looking straight up at them, basically. You really, I mean, the limits of your peripheral vision are the ends of the bench, which in some ways is good because you're you're not going to be distracted by anything else. So I guess there was a little bit of nervousness because I was the one that was actually going to stand up and make the argument. But, you know, you live with a case like that. And I'd been living with that case for about a year. I mean, if you don't know it yeah. by then... <laughs> there is good reason to be yeah. nervous. But. So I've I've read the transcript or most of it. I have not listened to the audio of the argument, but my impression from reading the transcript is that the justices did not really let you finish a lot of thoughts. No, and that's that's common. So you know, two hundred years ago. Um, the justices would sit up on that bench and they would let the advocates go on as long as they wanted to and give speeches, essentially. But that is not uh, the way the court operates now, and it's not the way the courts operated for probably 70 or 80 years. They're hot. Um, you, When you're going into a Supreme Court argument, the coaching advice you get for the beginning is – you need to boil down your presentation of the case to about 15 seconds, that this is what I want out of the case. And if you're lucky, you'll get through that 15 seconds. Uh, but then they're on you. But, again, that's sort of the difference between a trial-type thing and an appellate thing. I, I, for one, don't mind the hot bench because what the justices are, are doing is they are asking you about the things that trouble them about the case. Well, I want to know what that is. So I've got an opportunity to say why it shouldn't trouble them or, or why it does trouble me too, that the United States position is X or Y. And they're also using this to signal to each other what they view are the key elements in the case. And um, so I, a bad appellate advocate is somebody who goes up and that's sort of written out an argument they want to make to the Supreme Court and then get irritated that they can't do it. I went up there as I went up any appellate argument. I had one sheet of paper that had five to seven sort of key points that I really wanted to make. And so what you're trying to do is any question you get, you want to be able to answer it and you want to be able to answer it directly. Mm-hmm. And then immediately While also getting across the point, getting across and turning it right back. To so I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that um, if you're interviewing for a job with the FBI, the way those interviews work is they don't 
you don't talk about your resume. You don't talk about your experience. They just ask you questions. And you have to figure out ways to, to bring in, like to explain what your experience and your resume looks like in the answering of their questions. That, that's a very good analogy then to what the Supreme Court argument experience is like. Yeah. And it does make the time go by quickly. Too. So, yeah, how long were you in there making the argument? So the, the total case argument was just over an hour. Um, each side gets 30 minutes. I did, uh, I guess I went 20 or 22 minutes, got to a good stopping place and reserved the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Um, so 30 minutes total. Were the justices, like, personality-wise, what you expected going into it? Yeah, basically? they really, they pretty much were. And again, I'd been in, you know, I'd sat second chair for a couple of arguments, and I'd been to tons of arguments in my job. So, yeah, you kind of know who's going to, I mean, you know Justice Thomas is not going to ask gonna you say a question. Nothing, right? You know that Justice Breyer is going to give you hypotheticals that are extremely lengthy. Mm-hmm. You know that the then Chief Justice Rehnquist um, is very direct. He's going to ask a question, very brusque in his manner, and he wants you to, to get to it very quickly. You knew that then Justice Stevens was a very sort of courtly, like he would always say, excuse me, counsel, may I ask you a question? <laughs> yes, I think you may do that. So Scalia is going to drop bombs just for the sake of you know, bombs. Yeah, and he could. I got to tell one thing about Scalia, though, in this argument. I, you know, I lost the case 6-3, but in my rebuttal, Justice Scalia started asking me a question, and he starts citing this language from the statute, and he really thinks he's springing the trap on me. And as he's reading the language, I thought, he's reading a different part of the statute. And so he completed reading the language, and I said, excuse me, Justice Scalia, are you referring to section blah, 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 the statute? And And he said, yes, I am. Like, I've got you now. And I said, well, Justice Scalia, as you know, the issue in this case is this other provision mm-hmm. and the difference in the language between the section you're citing and the section it proves that I'm right. And I will go to my grave believing, based on his reaction, that he really had goofed up mm-hmm. and was looking at the wrong section. The And I thought, I've got him. I got him on this one, and this is going to win. Of course, it did not. Well, so interestingly, <laughs> in the uh – majority opinion he he agreed with the majority but he there was like one paragraph where he like sort of which is a very scalia thing yeah i think there was some there was some reference to legislative history that the majority relied on and he was a guy that believed you should almost never pay any attention to legislative history so So, walk me through the process of waiting for the decision because it's not like in a time to kill where the kid runs out and is like he's free we don't know that day like you make your argument and then we got to wait a couple months to find out at least and you really don't know when the decisions i mean you know so i argued in the case in december of 2003 and you know you're going to get a decision by june of 2004 because the court's going to issue decisions in all cases before they recess but you don't know when the the uh the decision is going to come down i'm trying i as i'm sitting here now i want to say the decision came down in february or march i think of 2004 but you you really don't know all you know is that um every day that the court is in session for arguments they may announce opinions and uh and then toward the end of the term after arguments are complete anytime they 
assemble on the bench, you know, they're going to announce opinions. So you just sort of wait to see what's going to happen. But the same, it was a similar situation before they took the bench. You get a call from the clerk's office to tell you what the result is in the case. And actually, at least where my office was, the call came quickly enough that if I had won, I was going to run down to the court and be there in person when it was announced. But since I didn't win, I didn't go down there to get the bad news <laughs> delivered a second time in yeah. person. But, but yeah, you just you just wait to see what happens. Now, th- those serious court watchers um, do a pretty decent job of predicting when an opinion is going to get announced. They sort of figure out who they think got assigned the opinions and based on that when they're going to come out. But just wait for it to happen. Yeah. So – who names who comes up with the names for the anonymous because we have jane roe and roe v wade we have buck doe in buck your case doe. right it's not the same people naming hurricanes because the hurricanes <laughs> are much more creatively named. yeah uh i i don't know the answer to that i assume that the attorneys who brought the case in the trial court on behalf of the um, the black the lung coal miner right that they came up with the pseudonyms but uh the funny thing about that, the, the Buck Doe, I mean, the Buck Doe was the lead plaintiff, the lead anonymous plaintiff in the case. And I, even Justice Rehnquist, at the beginning, he's he's calling the case. The court will now hear argument and number, blah, blah, blah. And he got to the Buck Doe, and you almost heard him stumble over it, because clearly he wanted to say John Doe, because yeah. for some reason they came up with Buck. I, I, the only thing I've ever been able to guess is whatever coal miner in southwest Virginia that was really just thought, I've always wanted to be a buck, and by God, here's my chance to be Or a maybe buck. his name was John, and he he was already <laughs> mad enough that his social security number was out there, and he wanted to not have his first name out that there, could too. Be. <laughs> that could be. Okay, so I have in my pocket my guess as to your answer to this question. We're right. going to see how close I came. Uh, what is your favorite courtroom movie oh gosh i don't know what my favorite courtroom movie probably i i tell you the one that first came to mind was my cousin Vinny. all right let's let's see what i have in my pocket okay let's, let's although that. that's not an appellate case let's, ca- let's uh, pull uh, this card out oh look at that know. john you nailed win it. the uh nailed it <laughs> had a feeling that might be your answer well marissa torme you know I, I also thought there was an outside chance you might say Legally Blonde also. I actually did like Legally Blonde, yeah. but... <laughs> All right, good. I I don't have a guess for this one, but what about favorite courtroom TV show? Favorite courtroom TV show? I don't know, John. I don't know if, I've actually, if I have a favorite uh, with that. I mean, it's not... I mean, it's, you could be cliche and go Perry Mason, but you and I, even I'm not old enough to have been a... Perry Mason fan. I I don't know. I don't think I've got a really a favorite. I mean, I kind of liked Allie McBeal back in the day because I because Jane Krakowski was in it, but I don't. Yep, (laughs) had nothing to do with the show. So that was though. That was you're you're of the era that would have really liked Allie McBeal, right? So well, again, I wouldn't say I necessarily was completely wrapped up in the writing and the acting, (laughs) but but some of the players such that there wasn't. Yeah, okay, very good. So all in all, uh, the experience of arguing at the Supreme Court left you where career wise. Yeah, that that was so. Let me back up a step before that. I. You know, I was in D.C. working for a big firm and got wonderful experience and training there. But 
it was all consuming. You know, I worked crazy, crazy hours. And I'm not complaining about that. You know that coming in. But funny enough, right about the time that I had filed the petition for before the court for that, I had already pretty much decided I was going to move on, uh, that I couldn't keep doing it at that pace. Um, and then the petition gets granted. So you think, well, certainly not leaving now because i assure you had i left i would they, i could have gone to the clients and say would you like to stick with me to argue a case and they would have rationally said no we'll stick with the giant supreme court litigation firm that you used to be with right. to handle that so i stayed with the case and argued the case and um that sort of made me start that made me wobble a bit on what my future was going to be and i and I was interested at the time there were two openings in the Solicitor General's office. So, again, the Solicitor Generals are the, the, the government's lawyers in the Supreme Court particularly. Yep. And I thought, okay, I got a Supreme Court case under my belt. Um, I've gotten to know several of the folks in the SG's office. In fact, um, the guy who actually argued the case for the United States was a late substitution. The The attorney who had, had been handling it was Patty Millett, who's now a judge on the D.C. Circuit. And I'd gotten to know her pretty well, and I thought, right, maybe I've got a shot. Um, so after the case, I applied to be an assistant to the Solicitor General and thought, boy, if I can get – this is a dream job. If I can work for the SG's office, spend two or three years – doing this stuff, and then come back to a firm. That's what I'd like to do. But I did not get um, get the, get an offer to go to the SG's office. So at that point, you know, I felt like if I stayed, um, I do think I'd have made partner. And I think that some more of these opportunities would have come along. But I'd sort of reached a point, John, that I, I loved what I did, but I didn't love doing it that many hours a yeah. week. And so moved on from there. Um, Seems, gives me a nice story to tell. It seems to me that uh, I think most people would be surprised, or maybe wouldn't be, um, to learn that most Supreme Court cases are more like what you argued. It's not these big cultural oh, flashpoint, absolutely. Roe v. Wade or Obergefell with the gay marriage decision. Right. Like, it's more s- procedural stuff like this. No question about it. The, 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 so the grist for the Supreme Court mill are statutory interpretation cases and Federal rules of civil procedure. How do you um, how do you interpret those? Because fundamentally, what the Supreme Court exists to do most of the time is, if you have two or three courts of appeals in the United States have decided the same issue differently, right. and so mostly what they're doing is taking those cases to try to give a uniform interpretation to the law. So, yeah, the the ratio of sexy cases to non sexy cases is you know, probably one to twenty. Um, and the court only hears, as you know, you know, anywhere from 75 to 100 cases a year. And out of that, five in any given term are going to be the ones that are the headline-grabbing stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm very sorry that you didn't make the nah, Harvard right. Law Review. Yeah, yeah. what but, can you do? But you made it on this podcast, so congrats. <laughs> well, and let me – I do want to tell one story about Justice Breyer, though. Um, the I was sad I didn't win the case, and sad for the clients that I didn't win the case. But um, there was sort of a coda to it that really took took some of the sting out of that. 
Um, I clerked on the First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, based in Boston, and Justice Breyer was a judge on that court for many years before he was elevated. And he and the judge that I clerked for were longtime friends. In fact, when I was clerking on the First Circuit, one morning I arrived in Boston earlier than I expected to meet the judge for argument days, and I opened the door to the judge's chambers, and there sits Stephen Breyer. And I said, oh, Justice Breyer, nice to meet you. (laughs) After the argument and after the decision came down, um, Judge Selya, that's the judge I clerked for, shared with me that, that Justice Breyer had written him a letter to say, just wanted to let you know that your guy did a great job. I'm sorry he didn't win. I was happy to vote for him. And so I was like, you know what? Well, that's cool. That, that'll do. Yeah. That, that'll. A Supreme Court justice yeah. remembers who I am. At least in that moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great experience, though, John. I, I tell you, it's uh, – and I knew it when I was doing it. I mean, the moments, as deep as you are in the case presentation and all that, I was very aware in the moment of – what a big deal it was. Might be the much. only time I get to do and this. And I, at that point, I was pretty sure that was going to, and of course it did turn out to be the only time I would do that. But, And I have one picture th- that's in my office uh, from that day, and uh, it's me and Don Ayer, who is the partner who was supervising me, standing on the steps at the Supreme Court that uh, morning to go in. And the only reason I mention that is you may, Don Ayer has been very active politically since retiring um, with the Lincoln Project and other things like that. So Don's, I watched Don testifying before Congress a couple of weeks ago. And um, so that's the only picture I have of me and another attorney in my career. Um, and that's the one that's sitting Just on my At the Supreme Court, no big deal. On that day. My thanks to Jay for taking time to share with us. One thing that he said after we finished recording was, you know, he was talking about the life of you know, living that high octane DC attorney life and how, you know, there was a career path for him there to to stay in that world and either work his way up to partner in some law firm or, you know, have a couple of really big high profile jobs in that world. (laughs) He said, "I, I pretty much determined that I could make a lot of money doing this and then give half of it away to Amy in the divorce a few years later, which would have been inevitable because he would have never been around his family. Or he said, I can choose a different career path, which is uh, what he ended up doing and you know, still has a happy family today with two kids in college and a wife that has stayed with him. So, you know, sometimes in life, uh, the highest earning job is not necessarily the right answer for you. But I hope you enjoyed my talk with Jay. We'll have more conversations with clients who have interesting stories to tell coming up in the future weeks right here on Mr. Stillman's Opus. 